I haven't preached in seven weeks, so I'm feeling a little rusty being back up here a bit. It feels only right to thank Roger for his faithful preaching over the past seven weeks and also Preston, so maybe we could give them a hand. And I'm thankful uh, to be at a church where you guys would let me take most of July off and then also a few extra weeks off from preaching uh, to focus my energies elsewhere. So thank you. Uh, it means a lot to me, and hopefully I remember how to do this. And so bear with me. Uh, we have been going through the Gospel of Mark in four parts. Uh, we've been picking it up, putting it back down, and now we're picking it up back again, and we're in part three. It's only taken us officially a year to get to this point, but the good news is we are officially halfway through the Gospel of Mark. Well done. You've made it. Uh, but at this point in Mark's gospel, we take a massive shift. So far, who is Jesus has been the question propelling the gospel forward. It's the question Mark is driving the readers to ask, and it's the question the people within the gospel are wrestling with as well. But as readers, we're told up front in verse 1, chapter 1, Jesus is the Son of God. And yet, as Jesus begins to make himself known in the world, as he begins to encounter people and reveal who he is, we see another theme emerge, rejection. See, not only is Jesus rejected by the uh, religious elites, some of who are actually conspiring uh, for his demise, Jesus is also consistently rejected in the hearts and mind of his very own disciples. But as the, God, the first half of the Gospel of Mark comes to a close. Something remarkable happens. People start to get it. In chapter 8, we read about the remarkable healing of a deaf man, and this uh, signified a shift. He was starting to hear and understand. And today, we read of the healing of a blind man. He begins to see and perceive and the both miracles signify bigger, something bigger than the miracle itself. People aren't in this phase that Jesus had talked about where they see and don't understand or hear and don't perceive, but now they see and they get it. They hear and they get it. It is a shift, and yet while this is happening, his closest followers, his disciples, even his apostles are still in the dark. And that's what makes the end of chapter 8, such a dramatic turning point because the disciples here finally start to get it. But the moment they do, the moment they pipe up and say, ah, this is who you are, Jesus says, oh, okay then, let me tell you about the way that I came to walk. Let me tell you about the way of the cross. And from here on in the Gospel of Mark, the way of Christ becomes the central theme. Yes, Mark is still trying to help us understand who Jesus is, but what he is telling us is you can't answer that question unless you understand what he came to do. So here's the big idea in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 through chapter 9, verse 1. When you confess who Jesus is, you also confess who you must become to follow him. When you confess who Jesus is, you also confess who you must become to follow him. So open your Bibles up with me to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. It's going to be on the screen as well. And when they came to Bethsaida, some brought people to him, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. It's really hard to keep momentum going. Think about George Lucas. He invented Star Wars, you know. He transformed culture with episodes three through six. He innovated new technologies. He gave us some of the most climactic scenes of cinematic history. You know, these are not the droids you're looking for. He also gave us Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> Understandably, people start to say, is George Lucas losing his touch? And as our passages starts, we have to be asking, is Jesus losing his touch? So far in the gospel, Jesus has cast out demons, healed broken bodies, calmed storms, given hearing to the deaf, and even raised a little girl from death to life. And in all of these instances, Jesus says the word and it happens. But here, Jesus attempts to heal a blind man and it doesn't seem to take. He says, do you see anything? And he says, well, I see some stuff, but it looks like people, like walking as trees. I mean, that's a pretty sweet party trick, Jesus, but it's not exactly what this man was hoping to receive. Take one didn't work, and so Jesus lays his hands on the man again, and then it says he saw everything clearly, but it takes two attempts. Is Jesus losing his touch? Of course not. Just like the healing of the mute man in, in the passage before this, this miracle signifies something more. It happened, but it also contains tons of meaning. It points to the fact that spiritual sight, seeing who Jesus is, is more often than not progressive. It's not always immediate. Indeed, it rarely is. You know, while some people have dramatic conversion moments where they go from complete blindness to sight. Many people have a progressive movement into seeing who Jesus is. And all people, no matter what that moment of clarity looks like, are always continuing to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is until the day they die. And so there's nothing wrong with your experience if your experience has been more progressive, where you seem to not be able to solely identify a defining moment, but you know for certain in this moment that you see and believe who Jesus is. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a very normal experience in the Christian faith because we see it right here in the first disciples. The progressive healing of the blind man, it signifies the spiritual journey that all of Christ's disciples are on, including us. We're all moving from a total lack of understanding to misunderstanding to understanding to a mature understanding. And up until this point, despite all that the disciples have seen and witnessed and heard, they still lack a total understanding. But all of that is about to change. Because Jesus, he's not content to leave us in the dark. He doesn't leave us half finished. He doesn't leave the man just seeing trees. He wants us to understand. He wants us to see. But just as it takes a miracle for the blind to see and the deaf to hear, it takes a miracle for us to see and hear who Jesus is. So look at verses 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of, uh, village of Caesarea Philippi. 
And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. You see, everything we've read so far about this healing of the blind man is to set us up for this scene. This is our turning point. But how do we know this is the turning point? Three words. On the way. On the way. Now that doesn't seem like the most important three words you've ever heard. But Mark writes this and it's, he's not just referencing that they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. This is a loaded idiom and if we're not familiar with idioms, we could mistakenly take them literally. Like if someone didn't know the idiom, they let the cat out of the bag. They might respond by saying, well, why was the cat in the bag to begin with? And should we go track down this cat? And if we find the cat, should we even give it back to an owner who puts the cat in the bag? What sort of person does that? You would totally miss the meaning. In the same way, if we don't realize that on the way is an idiom, we miss its substance, its meaning, what Mark is actually saying. If we think back all the way to chapter 1, where John the Baptist is paving the scene in the way for Christ, what's he doing out there? Preparing the way of the Lord. And all throughout Scripture, whenever we see the way of the Lord, it's in reference to the way that Christ came to walk. It's in reference, in particular, to his impending death and resurrection. It's always about that, and it becomes explicitly clear in the verses to follow. And so we're at a turning point in the gospel because as soon as the disciples get it, the way is what Jesus becomes focused on helping them understand. And it's when the way is more present in his sight, when it's drawing near, that he finally stops and he says to the disciples, who are people saying that I am? And the disciples, they throw out a few answers that are circulating. They give three of them. And what do these three answers have in common? They all misidentify Jesus. You know, they say, well, Jesus is John the Baptist. But that's not true. Jesus and John, you know, they were cousins. People saw them together. How on earth could Jesus be John the Baptist? Anyone who's saying this shows that they have no clue what's going on. They have a total lack of understanding. Now, some say Jesus is Elijah. You know, that's better, but it's still way off. You know, not Elijah Wood, but Elijah the prophet. You know, he was a prophet who was taken up with God. He didn't die. And so the Jewish expectation was that actually Elijah would return and pave the way for the Lord. And yet people didn't understand that it was the spirit of Elijah, which was transferred to Elijah, that was given to John the Baptist to prepare the way. This shows a partial understanding but it's still misunderstanding. The third is that Jesus, he's one of the prophets. Now, this is certainly better. Jesus is certainly a prophet, but he's much, much more. This is just a partial understanding. There's answers circulating out there to the question, who is Jesus? They're ample, and they can land somewhere between total misunderstanding, partial understanding, misunderstanding, somewhere in there. And it's the same today. It's the same today. Who is Jesus? Well, some are going to say he's a myth. He didn't exist. And yet, even the most skeptical scholars would say, at the very least, Jesus of Nazareth was a 
historical person. And yet I have still met people who say, nah, he didn't exist. It's a total lack of understanding. Who's Jesus? Some people say, oh, he's an exaggeration of disciples' imagination. He existed, but they just built up who this person is. But this answer, it fails to seriously consider the radical transformation of the disciples. They went from being cowards locked away in a room willing to throw away everything to being willing to die for the movement, not because they sought out death, but because they were so committed to radical love and hospitality, they could not remain quiet, even if it meant at the expense of oppressors killing them. And so to say that he's just a figment of their imagination is to stop short. Still others say, ah, he, Jesus, that Jesus, ah, great moral teacher. You should take the good teachings out of the Bible. And there's truth in this. Jesus taught some great things. He, and he's, he's a prophet, he's a religious leader, he's all of these things, but it still stops short. You see, the answers are circulating. They're abundant. They're, who is Jesus? You can get a range of answers. And in fact, there are so many answers out there in our Google searches or in the books or in the articles that it's easy to conclude there's just too many possibilities. I can't possibly know who Jesus was. But as we see in this passage, a variety of answers have always been circulating. And so this doesn't exonerate us from the need to answer for ourselves. Because here's what Jesus does next in verse 29. He asks, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, it's not enough to just know a range of the answers that are circulating out there from other people's minds. Jesus says, people are going to say all sorts of things about me. What do you think? What are you going to say? Who am I? And of course, Peter is the one that pipes up. And he declares, you're the Christ, which means you're the Messiah. You're the the king that we've been waiting for God to send to the people of Israel. And this is huge. Peter gets it. It is the first time in Mark's gospel that human lips have declared that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew records it this way. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is clear. Truly seeing and perceiving who he is is not the result of natural sight and understanding. It is a gift from God. It's a miracle. And Peter's Total lack of understanding, it's beginning to dissipate, but it's a process. Because Peter, he's given this insight, but then what does he do? He immediately distorts it. Peter says, you're the Christ. He's saying the right words, words that God the Father gave to him. But then he immediately interprets what they mean based on his own expectations rather than the expectations of God. Look at verses 31 through 32. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. The moment that Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, okay, let me tell you about the way. 
Let me explain what that really involves. It involves rejection and being killed and resurrection. That's what it means to be the Christ. That's what it means to be the Messiah of Israel. That's what it means to be God's everlasting king. And Jesus says this straight up. Mark tells us. He says this plainly. No parables, no interpretation needed, just the facts. And how does Peter take this? Peter rebukes him. Think about that. If you join a community group and on our inward rhythm, you shared your life story and you opened up, you went deep, you lay it all on the line and you're honest and it's all true and you're telling things that are deeply personal and you're also sharing like great hopes and dreams that you have for your life and, and you know, there's tears in your eyes and your heart is, you know, in your throat, but you're so glad to be sharing it. And then all that someone says is, nah, that's not who you are. And they rebuke you. How would you respond? Who are you to tell me who I am? Now, when it comes to our own sense of self, our own recollection of who we are, we could be wrong. That's actually possible. But Peter is rebuking the Son of God. Jesus says to Peter, this is who I am. This is what I came to to do. And Peter says, you can't be that. That's not who you are. That's not the Messiah. That's not the everlasting King of Israel. And Peter's God-given declaration of Jesus begins to unravel. Why did this happen, though? And Jesus, he tells us plainly. He says to Peter in verse 33, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. You see, when Peter said, you're the Christ, He didn't have rejection and suffering and death in mind. He expects the Messiah to be a revolutionary leader who overthrows Rome, who restores the former glory days of Israel and establishes the everlasting throne of King David. He expects a spiritual, political, military leader to come with strength and power and victory. And this was the popular expectation in his time. So why not expect that? But Jesus, he's come to reveal that the Messiah is a suffering servant. The Messiah, he will establish the everlasting kingdom of God. He will restore all things. He will eradicate sin, suffering, evil, and death. But not by military power, not by violence. He'll do it through weakness, rejection, humiliation, and death. And Jesus is saying this and this alone is the way of God. But Peter objects. Peter objects because it's an affront to every single thing he expects. And we have our own objections too. How are we supposed to believe that God saved the world through suffering and crucifixion and death? This is not how most people expect God to show up. We think if God shows up, it's going to be a miracle in the sky or a miracle around us. But To walk in human flesh 2,000 years ago in a remote part of the world, dying a horrific death, strictly speaking, from a human perspective, setting our minds on the things of man, this makes no sense at all, and we got to own that. But let's own that there's actually a deeper objection still for us. Jesus says in verse 31 that his suffering, his rejection, his death, it's going to be at the hands of who? the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. You see, 
In our day and age, we look at religious leaders with suspicion. I know you're looking at me and thinking, I know he's wearing a collar under that shirt somewhere. Like, there's something not trustworthy about religious leaders in our day and age because of the things we have heard. And so we look at them with suspicion. But that's not how it was in the ancient world. That's not how it was in Israel. These people mentioned represent the best of the best. And so what Jesus is saying, it's not humanity at its worst that will crucify the Son of God. It's humanity at its best. You see, the death of Jesus, it's not going to be a momentary lapse of judgment. It's, not, it's, it's the result of careful deliberation. From who? upstanding and respected religious leaders who justify their actions by the highest standards of law and morality. You see, Jesus, he's not lynched by an angry mob. He's not beaten to death in a criminal act. He was arrested with official warrants, tried and executed by the highest court of justice. Jesus is crushed by human goodness. What does that say about our sense of goodness. From our perspective, what we're doing can seem good and right and just, but what we call good in reality can be utterly corrupt and bankrupt, which is why Isaiah the prophet says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just challenge the existing assumptions about the Messiah. He also challenges the assumptions about human morality and goodness. And we object, we object, and yet he says this isn't up for negotiation because the cross of Christ is no accident. Look at verse 31. He says, I must go through these things. This is why I came into the world. I must suffer and die on the cross to deal with human goodness. Because even our best moral and upright conceptions of goodness, religious or humanist, are corrupt and tainted. Even the most decent and upright and moral person by today's standards still stands in desperate need of what Jesus accomplished on the cross because good and moral and nice people do not stand above the foot of the cross any higher than the broken sinner or wicked. Now, Peter rejects Jesus in this moment because he just can't wrap his head around it. It defies all of his expectations. But it's also hard for our minds to wrap around it as well. Was it really necessary? Was it really a must that Jesus had to die personally for me? Surely we're not that bad. That's offensive. We don't really need this. Like Peter, we can begin to say, no, that can't be right. That can't be who you are. That can't be why you came. We object to who Jesus is and what he says he came to do. And you see, left to our own minds and desires, we cannot and will not accept the things of God. And that's because our minds are set on the things of man and our self-preservation kicks into high gear. Because deep down we know if we let Jesus be who he claims to be, we're also declaring who we have to become to follow him. We have to accept what he says about us as true. And we don't want that. We want to define who we are. Think about Peter, 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 been watching too much, uh, whatever, Hunger Games. Uh, he's been following Jesus. 
And he's, he's been following him, expecting success and conquest and victory and power and might. And he's been expecting to share in this. But then Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer and die. What does that mean for Peter? You're going to suffer and die with me. Self-preservation kicks in. It's too much. And the same way, if we truly confess who Jesus is, we have to abandon our sense of moral sufficiency. We have to abandon any notion of being good inherently, despite how good we think we are. We have to accept that the cross was an absolute necessity, non-negotiable, in order to be in relationship with God. And like Peter, we also have to accept that the way of Christ is a way of weakness and humiliation, suffering, and death. And so like Peter, what we do is we end up beginning to distort who Jesus is. Because if we define Jesus on our own terms, then we can also define what's required of us. You understand that? If we define who Jesus is, we also get to define what's required of us. If you say Jesus wasn't God, he was just a good moral teacher, you get to define, A, who he is, but also what teachings you want to agree with or disagree with. Because if he's just a teacher, you don't have to listen to everything he said. And so you can keep doing whatever it is you want to be doing. You can define yourself to be whoever you want to be. Or maybe you believe Jesus is God, but you say it's scripture I take issue with. And whenever scripture encroaches upon some sort of cultural norm or some way that you want to live, you say, well, scripture was a product of its time and I just can't believe X, Y, or Z about it. But what's the result? You reduce who Jesus is so that you can remain in authority and continue to call the shots of how you want to live. You see, whether you have faith or you're a Christian or not, our self-preservation drives us to distort who Jesus is because we want to retain a sense of control. We want to define who we are. We want to call the shots for our life. And if we let Jesus be who he claims to be and do what he says he had to do, it demands our total surrender, and our complete and utter loyalty in him alone. It requires that we repent and we believe. And Jesus knows that this is all brewing in us. That's why he goes on to say in verses 34 through 38, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus makes it explicit. When you confess who he is, you also confess who you have to become to follow him. If you let him be the Son of God who came to die for the sins of the world, that means you have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant man, just puts it this way. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life, and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being 
and you will find eternal life. That is a brutal sales pitch. Denying ourselves. Dying to our own desires. Losing our lives and recklessly abandoning ourselves to him alone. Jesus understands that our self-preservation kicks in. He knows deep down we want to gain the whole world here and now rather than risk it by hoping solely in the world that is to come. We want to live this life to the full for ourselves just in case there's nothing afterward. But Jesus warns us, you'll end up losing your life anyway. You'll end up forfeiting your soul You'll be denied eternal life in the kingdom. You will spend eternity separated from God. I will be ashamed of you. That's a heavy warning from Christ. And what he's saying is if you're going to lose it all ultimately, why not lose it all now? Rather than gain the world now, why don't you gain eternity ultimately? The offer makes sense. It's the calling though. How are we supposed to deny ourselves? How are we supposed to pick up a cross and follow him? How are we supposed to walk this way when everything in us resists it and wants to run in the other direction? Thank God for chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus said to them, Truly, when he says this, you want to underline and pay attention to what he's saying. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, maybe you're scratching your head. How is this comforting? How does this resolve all the tension? The disciples are promised that in their lifetime, they will see the kingdom of God. They will find a way in. What is Jesus talking about? What is the power? His death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus is power because there was no way into the kingdom of God. There's no gate, no door, no back entrance, no qualifications, no moral certificate in goodness, no religion. Nothing can bring us into the kingdom of God. And even more, when our minds are set on the things of man and our self-preservation kicks in, we do everything we can to stay out of the kingdom of God. And so the only entrance into the kingdom of God is the shape of a cross, the cross of Christ. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to see me truly, if you look at me, you have to look through the cross. And when you do, you'll see its power and you will see the kingdom of God and you will see God in his beauty and his glory accepting you and loving you and embracing you and making a way when there was no way. And he says, this is the miracle that you need, that I dragged my cross through this dirt and I was crucified upon crooked beams to forgive your sins, to make a way when there was no way. And I did it for every single one of you by name. And because of that, we can deny ourselves and pick up our cross with joy. Well, what changed? All of a sudden, we're not doing it to earn Christ's love. We're not doing it because we have to, you know, sacrifice our way into the kingdom. We're doing it because we've seen who Jesus is. He's revealed himself to us. And we say, I want to be like that. 
It's a joy to be like that. And the good news of the cross of Christ is that we never have to outpace Jesus on the way because he's paved the way for us. He will bring us to completion. He leaves no one half complete. And he says, I will walk with you. We never have to outpace Jesus. And it's a joy to become like him. And for all of us, every single person in this room, the way of Christ is a journey of sight. If you don't see who Jesus is, if this whole sermon, you're wrestling with it and you have questions and it still doesn't make sense to you, or if you feel like you're only partially seeing, but it feels mixed up, I want to be really clear about something. You cannot deny yourself and pick up your cross and find your own way into the kingdom of God by somehow pleasing God enough and working hard enough to be a good person. The only way the way of the cross is possible for us is to first see who Jesus is and what he has done, and that is a miracle. And so what you have to do is ask for a miracle. God, grant me eyes to see, grant me ears to hear. And that is the truest act of self-preservation to cling to Jesus. Ask him to show himself to you. But if you've seen Jesus, you've followed for a while, this passage encourages and reminds us, don't stop looking. Because we always look through a veil dimly. There is always more glory to see. There is always more beauty to behold. And the promise is that when God shows us his face, his face in the person of Christ, we will be satisfied with his likeness. We will be transformed into his image. And so if it feels like it's been hard to follow Jesus, like you've been dragging your feet, like you can't, the weight of the world is on your shoulders, fall down and look at him. Behold him. See him. Ask God to give you fresh eyes. So when we confess who Jesus is, we confess who we must become to follow him. Do you see? 